Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I've got Trina Tazeros, who's a director in HRI and leads the HRI Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Well, today we were going to focus on the demographics of the pandemic. And uh, there's a lot that can be focused on with demographics, but specifically, let's dig into age and what does the pandemic mean for people of different ages? So maybe just as a kind of a 101 to start out, what are some of the different effects that we're seeing simply based on people's age? Yeah, so actually, we've gotten some really good data out recently, thanks to the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I'm going to talk first about children in particular, because a lot of our ideas about children and COVID-19 were kind of born out of the spring and the lockdown period. And during that period, we saw very little virus amongst children, very few cases. But since the end of the lockdown period, we've really seen kind of a blossoming of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths among children, particularly cases. If you look at May 21st, you look at the cases amongst children May 21st to August 20th, so over the summertime, when our kids started to go out, see each other, play, engage in sports, and now are beginning to go to school, for cases, we've seen a 720% increase in cases in children. And that's compared to a 270% increase in cases amongst everybody. Hospitalizations-wise, it's much the same story. Hospitalizations amongst children are still pretty rare. But nevertheless, if you compare May 21st to August 20th, we've seen a 356% increase in hospitalizations amongst children. If you look kind of overall, our entire U.S. population, the difference is 122% increase. And then deaths, again, still relatively rare, but the number of deaths or the percentage increase in deaths over that same period, May 21st to August 20th, we've seen a 229% increase in deaths in children and amongst all of us, 115%. So we've seen a rise over the summer due to sort of this, well, what we see with our very own eyes, kids outside playing with each other, interacting, the end of the lockdown, easing of restrictions, and now children going to school. And I think we will probably see a continuation of this as children, some of children go back to school in person, and we see outbreaks arise from that. When we break down the category of children, kind of that zero to 18 year age group or so, do we see differences within that demographic specifically? Yeah, yeah. So pretty interestingly, if you look at children nine and under and you compare it to children 10 to 19, so nine years in each group, you really see a clear skewing toward ages 10 to 19. So older children are more likely to be diagnosed with COVID-19 than younger children. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen with younger children, but state after state after state that report the data in this way. So we don't have data from every state, but we do have data from a good number of them. The story is the same. The younger the child, the less likely they are to be diagnosed with COVID-19. And the older they are, the more likely they are to be diagnosed with COVID-19. And we, I don't really know why that is. And they don't really know why that is. Are the younger children less likely to be infected? Or is it just that the older children are more likely to get sick and then thus be tested and then be diagnosed? The answer to that is still kind of murky, but 
the data do show that the the cases at least skew older than younger. Well, with the summer coming to a close and the fall just ahead of us, we're looking more towards now the university campuses. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. that you mentioned with the breakdown of children, the higher percentage of cases among those between the ages of 10 to 19. So we're starting to skew towards that age of kids, young adults going off to university. What are some of the effects, some of the kind of the early returns we've seen so far from the university system and those returning to campus. Yeah, I think I think the the phrase early returns is so perfect because that's exactly what we're seeing. So just in the last couple of weeks, we see students returning to college campuses all over the United States. And just in those few weeks, we're seeing the effects of that. The New York Times um, has been keeping track and they have counted 26,000 college cases at 750 U.S. colleges and universities. So that is quite a good number of cases. Although if we put it in perspective, we have in the United States... 6 million cases since the beginning of the pandemic that are you know, sort of officially diagnosed. So we're talking 26,000 out of 6 million. So we, we should keep it in perspective. Nevertheless, we are seeing at colleges and universities, these outbreaks sometimes involving hundreds and hundreds of students often linked to parties and the Greek life system. And so I think we are seeing the beginnings of this. Colleges and universities have put together pretty sophisticated, elaborate plans to try to deal with the possibility that they'll have outbreaks on campus and and to try to mitigate those. And so I think over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see colleges try to calibrate those plans, pushing back some of their restrictions to be more restrictive. In some cases, some universities are actually reversing decisions to bring groups of students back to campus. So I think we will see more of that calibration as we go forward. We also are seeing some of the communities that host these colleges and universities start to push back out of worry that the cases that are on campus among students will kind of um, spread out to the wider community and seed big outbreaks in their communities. One of the big hotspots right now is actually Iowa, which has two college towns in particular, Ames and Iowa City, that are both the sites of pretty significant outbreaks in the last week or two. And it's it's not all that surprising. All these students coming back to campus and you see pictures of it online all over the place of students maybe masking up to get into a bar, but once they're in the bar, they're taking off their masks and you have sort of these very, very ideal super spreading events happening night after night. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. These are the college's sort of best laid plans being undermined a little bit by just college students being college students. So that's what we expect to see. We'll see how it goes going forward as the universities sort of change their plans, recalibrate, in some cases, roll things back to try to mitigate these outbreaks that are happening. I think one question that tends to be on a lot of people's mind is, is this inevitable, especially in a, in a university setting? And it was interesting to see a case study from a sleepaway camp in Maine, which may indicate that it's not inevitable that when you put people together that there's a high transmission rate. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was one of those CDC cases that was actually a success story. So usually what we see in these CDC reports are super spreading events, and they're, they're almost always a, sort of a tragic thing that happened. But in this case, we have four sleepaway camps in Maine that managed to keep a thousand plus campers and staff safe all summer. And this I see as a microcosm for what some colleges and universities can do, especially ones that are more 
isolated like these sleepaway camps. So perhaps a, a college in the middle of a city is going to have a harder time doing what these sleepaway camps did. But you can imagine a small university having some of the same strategies might have success. So what they did, this was, this was a sleepaway camp that had student campers and staff from June to August, pretty long duration of stay. I think most kids were staying more than 40 days. So these were long stays at the sleepaway camp. And they had a very strict protocol of pre-arrival quarantine. So they asked uh, campers to keep themselves quarantined before coming. They had to get tested before they came and test negative. They got to the camp. They had to test again after they arrived. And then they had cohortings. They kept groups of campers together the whole time so that if there was a positive case, it would not sort of mix and match with everybody else in the camp. They kept kids together. Everybody wore masks. There was physical distancing when it could be done. There was enhanced hygiene measures. There's a lot of cleaning and disinfecting. And they tried to program activities outdoors as much as possible. And the result of all this was that Four asymptomatic attendees came and tested positive before they came. Those people had to wait until they tested negative again to come. They had a few folks test positive once they came. Those folks were quarantined and then allowed to mix with the general population once they quarantined. And then after that, they had they had nothing. They had a whole summer without cases. And this is an example of, I think, the success of these uh, mitigation strategies. In the end, the virus is not sort of a mystical, magical thing. With the right strategies diligently applied, you can, you can have summer camp all summer without outbreaks of cases. Or theoretically, you could open a college and sort of stamp out the virus as much as possible and then almost put a bubble around the college, much like the NBA has done down in Orlando. So we're seeing these strategies be put into place. We're seeing examples of success. And I think over time, we will all become better and better at, at figuring out how to sort of live with the virus and avoid um, tragic outcomes. It's really great to see at least some strategies that, that have potential and, and are working in, in some cases. There are still some challenges. And when we start picking apart the demographics of the under 18 population and what's happening regarding COVID, there's another demographic that seems to have differing effects when it comes to the pandemic, and that's around race and ethnicity. Could you uh, give us a little bit more information about what some of the data is showing for pediatrics in that area? Yeah, yeah. So I think we've seen in children a similar pattern to what we've seen in adults in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on children. So in adults, we have seen that Black Americans and Hispanic Latinx Americans are much more likely to become sick with COVID-19, to be hospitalized with COVID-19, and also to die from COVID-19. And so that same pattern is being replicated amongst children. The CDC put out some great data that really illustrates this not that long ago. And the data show exactly what I just said, except that in adults, the Black Americans have been disproportionately impacted. In children, it's Hispanic or Latinx children that have been disproportionately impacted, along with Black children, and then white children sort of less impacted. The pattern is most striking among zero to four-year-olds. You can see that cases per 100,000 for Hispanic to Latinx babies to toddlers is far greater than, say, a white baby or toddler. 
The same is true, but not as dramatic between five to 17-year-olds and then sort of all children, the same pattern, but not as striking as the babies. And I think that the question is for researchers is why? What's, what is going on that the children in particular, the youngest children that are Hispanic and Latinx are, are being impacted so much more than white children. And same question for Black children. Why Why is this disproportionate? I think this is the big question. And there's a lot of research out there answering that question. But if we can figure this out, you know, then, then mitigation strategies can be put into place and, and these kids can be protected. Well, as our final look at the demographics around COVID, let's go to the other side of life towards the, the elderly population. And there's some really interesting numbers coming out of Japan. So could you tell us a bit about what is Japan doing that is so different than other parts of the world and why is their COVID death rate so much lower for their older population? Yeah, so Japan um, is the world's oldest population. Average age is 47. The life expectancy is more than 81 years old. And this information that I'm about to talk to comes from the Washington Post. So, so if you're interested, they have a great story about this. What the data show is that in Japan, they have done a much more effective job in protecting their elderly from COVID-19, in particular from dying of COVID-19, than most other Western countries. If you look at the UK, the deaths per million people, Britain's overall is 610 deaths per million people. In the US, it's about 545 deaths per million people. In Japan, it's been nine deaths per million people. So not only are the elderly in Japan dying less frequently than in other countries, but everybody in Japan is dying less frequently than other countries. And in particular, the reason for that you can point to is that their elderly have survived much more uh, successfully than other groups. So if you look at the share of COVID-19 deaths in care homes for the elderly, in Japan, 14% of all COVID-19 deaths have happened in care homes. So long-term care facilities in the United States, in Japan, you'll call them care homes. If you compare that to the U.S., 45% of our COVID-19 deaths have happened in long-term care facilities. So you're comparing 45%, half of the U.S. deaths in long-term care facilities. In Japan, just 14%. And so the question is, what are they, what are they doing? What, how, did, how did they manage this? And if you look at the differences, some of them the U.S. can adopt, and some of them the U.S. is adopting. Some of them we cannot do anything about in the short term. So first, the things that can be done. They rapidly restricted access to staff and residents. So right away in the pandemic, they put into place measures to keep visitors from coming in, bringing the virus in. We are doing these kinds of measures, obviously, in long-term care facilities now. It's very, there's lots of restrictions on visitors. If you are going to see, there's a lot of times there's a, there's a whole plan set up where it's done outside, socially distanced with masks, so you can see your loved one in a long-term care facility and vice versa. But Japan did this right away. And so they avoided that big wave at the beginning of the pandemic that the United States saw in long-term care facilities. They already had high standards for hygiene and infection control in these facilities uh, before the pandemic. And because of that, they did not have to do a big intensification like we have had to do in the United States with hygiene and infection control. The staff 
actually, they put the staff in, in a kind of hybrid bubble where the staff were asked to just go from home to the facility and back over and over, but not to sort of mingle with the outside population very much. And the staff apparently complied with this in Japan very well. So people would just go home and then they would go to work and they would go home. And that way they would sort of limit their risk of contracting the virus. And that worked to the extent that they don't even wear masks in the facilities. The staff don't wear masks. Now, these are things that we could do in the United States. The piece that we cannot do anything about very quickly is that the elderly Japanese have lower obesity rates and diabetes rates than we do in the United States. And these are risk factors for poor outcomes from COVID-19. And there's very little we can do very quickly about that other than try to you know, make sure that everyone's metabolic syndrome or diabetes is well managed in the United States. But in Japan, the rates are lower. And so because of that, your risk of when you get COVID-19 of dying from it appears to be lower. So this is some of the things that, these are some of the things that Japan did that are distinct from what we've done in the United States and other countries. I'll point out that in France, half of the deaths due to COVID-19 happened in care homes. So it's not just the United States. This has been sort of the story in many countries, Japan being the outlier due to, we think, some of these factors. There's a lot to learn from these other countries and what they're doing. And and even within the United States, we're such a big country of all the different efforts going on. And it seems like there's a theme of the bubble around helping to stop the spread, at least. Well, we're going to go ahead and leave it there for today. This was a great deep dive, Trina, into the demographics, especially around age and some of the effects of what we're seeing in the U.S. And of course, you even bringing in the example of what Japan is experiencing. On next week's podcast, we will look at the testing conundrum. There's a lot of different tests out there that have a lot of different purposes. And we plan to dig into that next. Thank you for joining Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.